Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. So welcome to this episode of the Sustainability Unwrapped podcast brought to you by Hanken School of Economics in Finland. My name is Eva Nilsson and I'm a PhD student passionate about political economy, businesses and politics in Africa. And today we are here to discuss a very timely topic, the Black Lives Matter movement and how slavery and colonialism still matters for Western businesses. The Black Lives Matter movement has brought the legacy of slavery and colonialism to the Western consciousness in a way perhaps not witnessed since the end of formal colonialism in most African countries in the 1960s. It has reminded Western publics that colonialism lives on today in the forms of economic and knowledge-based dominance as a power structure that reproduces inequality and racism. The corporate sector has not gone unnoticed by the movement. On one hand, activists, at least in the UK, France and the US, have demanded businesses that can be traced back to slavery for reparations and formal apologies. In the UK, the insurance company Lloyds of London, the banks HSBC, Barclays and Royal Bank of Scotland, in the US, the banks JP Morgan, Bank of America and the clothing retailer Brooks Brothers, and in France, AXA insurance company, Banque de France and the maker of Hennessy Cognac have been pointed fingers at. On the other hand, many large multinationals such as Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Coca-Cola have endorsed the Black Lives Matter movement and marketed their diversity strategies in order to profile themselves as responsible corporations. In light of these recent developments, we are here today to discuss how and why slavery and colonialism still reflect on Western corporations and what steps should be taken towards decolonization. And I'm very happy to have three distinguished academics with me today. They all have researched colonialism and its different expressions in today's world. First, we have Stella Nkomo, who currently holds the position of strategic professor in the Department of Human Resource Management at the University of Pretoria and is the president of the Africa Academy of Management. Professor Nkomo is a noted scholar in the areas of leadership and change, diversified workforces and women and leadership and the author of several books and articles. She has also been awarded for her lifetime achievements in Africa's most influence, influential women in business and government awards. Then we have Professor Bobby Banerjee joining us from Cass Business School in London, where he is Professor of Management. Professor Banerjee's primary research interests are in the areas of sustainability, climate change and corporate social responsibility, combined with indigenous, post-colonial and cultural studies and the study of globalization. He has published extensively in leading academic journals. And finally, we have Holger Weiss, who is currently serving as professor in general history at Obo Academy University in Finland. His research focuses on global and Atlantic history, with a special focus on Nordic colonial aspirations in Africa and the Caribbean. 
He has also researched international labor movements, West African environmental history and the history of Islam in Ghana. Um, and to start this discussion, we will uh, have a brief dive into history and ask Professor Wise if you could tell us how and maybe also which corporations were involved in slave trade and colonialism. Please, the, uh, the uh, floor is yours, Professor Wise. Thank you. Uh, this is, of course, tackling a, a topic uh, that stretches over 500 years uh, in a few words is, is almost impossible. But let's let's see. Let's the, the kind of the basic line is that maybe uh, look at the global history of slavery. Uh, it opens up the doors to racism, segregation, and discrimination. That's kind of the, the great general outline, and that kind of forms. Uh, still affects us today and uh, that would be kind of the, the very short outline when we think of corporations uh, engaged in in slave trade and then of course um, not only we have to think of the transatlantic slave trade we can we must also think of the slave trade uh, uh, concerning the indian ocean uh, world uh, okay. slave trade uh, going uh, to North Africa, uh, the Islamic world, and so on. It's a very complex matter. And generally, when we speak about slave trade uh, during the pre-colonial period, uh, you usually you rather would focus on small enterprises. Uh, the very kind of the, it was a short phase when you had chartered companies that kind of were engaged with these trades. In general, when you move into the 18th century, and then when we speak about the so-called hidden Atlantic, the uh, illegal slave trade, which was, uh, when we speak about Brazil, not even illegal, uh, then you would find also smaller corporations being engaged. But usually um, the kind of long-term effects would be then uh, uh, slave traders investing their uh, money somewhere else. Uh, you would find uh, big uh, slave plantation owners who would invest uh, the, the fortunes that would have made out of these uh, plantations uh, back home uh, in Britain uh, or other areas. Uh, and that would then be the link but that you can, could follow up. Uh, but then kind of there is a breaking point in a sense when you, when you start to focus on the colonial period where you kind of really what you see uh, is the effects of colonialism in a sense that uh, and it, in particular, when we focus on Africa, is that um, apart from South Africa, um, during the colonial period, there was very little investment uh, in the African colonies. In comparison with uh, investments in Russia, in North America, even South America, Australia, from Europe, uh, there was very little investment, uh, financial investment, uh, in terms of, of generate, generating a kind of uh, modern industrial sector, for example, or uh, modern transport sector. Uh, rather, you, you would speak about, uh, during the colonial period, the establishment of uh, enclave economies, uh, which mainly would focus on either the mining sector or then uh, plantation sector of producing uh, raw materials like uh, palm oil, uh, groundnut oil, rubber, uh, cotton, coffee, cocoa, and so on. And there, of course, there are some well-known companies that are 
still existing today and that, that kind of <clears throat> have sometimes a dubious history, uh, especially when we speak about the engagement in this enclave sector, in the plantation sector, for example, or in the mining sector, like Firestone in Liberia, when we speak on uh, the rubber plantations, which really hit uh, the headlines to the 1920s and 1930s for the use of forced labor. Uh, earlier on, we had the well-known example of uh, the Congo Free State and the use of uh, forced labor uh, and about up to 10 million people died out of uh, the so-called red uh, uh, rubber boom um, at the turn of the uh, 19th, 20th century. Then we, we could list on and go on uh, the link with uh, Unilever today and its background, uh, Labour Brothers, uh, uh, but also meaning soap industry, but also then the margarine industry in Europe. Uh, really kind of when you go now to the uh, grocery and buy flora margarine, uh, that kind of would link you very closely back to uh, raw material produced in, in Africa, which uh, for very long time during the colonial periods uh, was linked to uh, the use of forced labor. So you could raise, I mean, Nestle would be a case, uh, Carbody would be a case. Um, um, so that's, that kind of would be the short introduction and where we really kind of could open up a, a, the kind of the, the long term history of uh, very few investments being done during the colonial period, uh, uh, the kind of uh, establishment of an eclave economy uh, with mainly focusing on, on mining or, or then uh, plantations, uh, but uh, otherwise I mean, we could really also make a case, case of that uh, all of these raw materials that were produced uh, were processed outside Africa. So they were processed in Europe, so, so kind of the the, the big, uh, the wealth you made out of these, these uh, uh, raw materials were never kind of reinvested back in Africa, but then were invested in Europe in whatever kind of uh, brands and so on. How would you uh, explain that Nestle, for example, that you raised as a case, uh, how exactly then, what was Nestle's form during colonialism? How can it be linked to colonialism? I mean, it's, it's, it's always we have to go back with, because these are now big multinational companies and it is the kind of, when they merged during the, the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, with previous companies that had been engaged in uh, cocoa plantation or coffee plantations and so on, uh, which would then be the link. And this is kind of, it's, it's, it's a, to my understanding, a very complex issue because you really have to go back with, with mergers of these kind of now big companies of which are the kind of companies that uh, were originally independent companies uh, and what, but, but, but what's their engagement that's let's say the end of the 19th century or the first uh, 20, 40, 20, 30 years during the 20th century. Right. And since you have also researched uh, Nordic um, is, um, colonial aspirations, um, I'm wondering if you have examples of Nordic companies or entrepreneurs um, who have been active during colonialism. Um, well, the Danish case is the most well-known because Denmark uh, had uh, t 
trade uh, possessions in, in West Africa, and they even uh, try to establish a plantation plantation sector in, in on the Gold Coast in today's Ghana, which failed, uh, mainly due to environmental and political reasons. Uh, but there was a kind of aspiration to do so. In, in, West, in the West Indies, uh, Danish West Indies, which was sold to the USA in, in 1917, uh, you had uh, a plantation sector, especially on St. Croix, um, with about um, 300 uh, mainly sugar plantations. Uh, and of course, the, the still existing Danish sugar company, uh, Danzico, which owns also the Finnish uh, sugar uh, company, the Sokari, uh, has its kind of background to that uh, sector. So uh, yes, you can open up these kind of, 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 of links, links too. Um, but if you have in mind, let's say, uh, Swedish engagements, uh, there was for a brief period a Swedish West India Company, uh, which was established in 1786 uh, and existed until uh, 1805, which had the permission to engage in transatlantic slave trade, but never did so. They realized that it, it didn't have the capacity to do so. But you had private enterprises and merchants on San Bartholomew, which was the Swedish colony in the West Indies, which uh, engaged in, in the slave trade. So it was not the company itself, but it was uh, private, uh, mainly, mainly one person enterprises, which uh, do not exist anymore and kind of very difficult to kind of to do the search on because they, they haven't left any archive. Right, thank you. Um, I think these Nordic possessions often go under the radar because we're of course focused more on on the big colonial powers like France and, and the UK, for example. And then might forget that also uh, Nordics were involved and, and can be traced back to this time. So for all our Finnish and Nordic listeners, I think it might be interesting to hear that also these historical traces exist. I, I mean, you, you do have them, but then we, we move into the late colonial period. Let's say after the Second World War, you have uh, Nordic companies, for example, example Swedish uh, uh, mining companies uh, being engaged uh, in Liberia, for example. The Elkoabe. Right. So, so that kind of, but it, it, it is, has, has to do also with the kind of economic history of the Nordic countries, which, uh, wh why you do, wouldn't find kind of direct in, uh, involvement uh, during the 19th century. But thank you. Let's move on to discuss uh, also the forms in which colonialism still then lives on today, um, after all those years from the times of slavery and, and the actual historical phase of colonialism. Um, let me ask first, uh, Professor Banerjee, um, you have written extensively about multinational companies in light of neo-colonialism and imperialism, and you have even used the term corporate colonialism when describing how corporations can disrupt state rule with the threat of violence. Um, could you talk us through an example of a situation where a Western corporation can be considered a colonial actor today? I think you, you can drop the professor. Bobby's just fine. Okay, uh, thanks. <laughs> just, yeah, I guess a, a caveat before I start. Yes, I, uh, I belong to a school formerly known as CAS Business School. The reason I say formally is in July, 
we found out during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement that our school, Cass, was named after Sir John Cass, who was a very active participant and uh, senior executive in the slave trade. He was a, 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 a executive director of the Royal African Company, which was the biggest slaving company in the world, responsible for shipping more African slaves to the Americas than any other institution. So obviously this has, uh, you know, produced shockwaves across and we have we quickly dropped the name and we are now looking to find a new name and also rebranding. So before I get into, I guess, the, the continuation of, of uh, colonialism, and also it's important to realize I live in a city, London, which was the capital of the slave trade. The, the, the wealth of this country was made by slaves. So a lot of institutions are very nervous because they are now looking at their sources of funding and almost everybody has some connection, especially in the city of London. So there's a, a, a lot of soul searching going on, which is good. 200 years too late, but better than better late than never. So I think if you talk about what kind of colonialism exists today in terms of corporate sector, it, we, we should probably go back to, to some history. Uh, let's not forget that the world's first multinational corporation was in 1602, which was the Dutch East India Company. They, mm. were the, they were the world's first multinational. And they were doing things back in the 17th century, which a lot of companies are doing today, what we teach in the strategy textbooks, you know, exploring markets, competition, making deals with, with, with governments, uh, you know, organizing communities. So it, it's not very different in terms of their strategies. And if you fast forward a couple of hundred years from that, there is the infamous case of uh, the uh, United Fruit Company in South America and the links with the CIA and the so-called banana wars where there was state capture in Honduras, in Guatemala, in attempts in Cuba, in, in Colombia. So the links between foreign power, uh, intelligence agencies, big corporates, and then the links with local government has a, has a long and, and very troubled history. So coming back to the modern era, where, where do I see the traces? I, I study violent mining conflicts uh, across the world and they are it's about four or 5,000 ongoing conflicts. It is no coincidence that all these conflicts are occurring in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and indigenous communities in North America and Australia. These are the former colonies. It is also no coincidence that the companies who are involved in these conflicts are headquartered in New York, Berlin, Paris, Montreal, London. So these are the metropolitan centers. So the only difference is the white man has gone. So the colonialism now is carried out by native elites like myself, I guess, you know, who are now carrying on the same modes of colonial extraction using the same discourses. And ironically, in India, at least, and in many parts of South America, ironically, using colonial era laws, right, to imprison people who are opposing the mines. So the same laws with the British used to imprison people like Gandhi in, in India, the same laws are now used to imprison environmental activists uh, who are tribal people trying to protest mining. So that's the, the perverse irony, I guess. So, so to look at specific uh, companies, it's not very difficult to point fingers at obviously the, the oil and gas industry. I think one thing we need to figure out in terms of how the power exists is sheer economic power. So if you look at the Fortune Global 500, the top 500 companies, their total revenue is $31 trillion. Right. So these 500 companies there uh, so the, the are essentially have uh, revenues more than the top 100 countries. 
So the 26th largest country in the world today is Walmart in terms of, of GDP economies. The 27th largest economy is ExxonMobil. So Israel got Shell. The 30th largest economy is ExxonMobil. So these are so more than 50 economies of 100 are corporations. So there's a straight of economic power, right? Uh, in terms of, of just money and wealth, which obviously buys a lot of influence, for influence. So if you look at, for example, the mining industry in some of the remote areas in Latin America, I, I spent a lot of time in Australia. Uh, if you go to northern to, 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 to the northern parts of the country, you have Rio Tinto, right? This is a mining town. Now, this is a private corporation. They've built the roads, they've built the airport, they've built the railway station, they've built the power plant, they've built the water supply, they've built the medical center, they've built the hospital, they've built the schools. This is a private corporation. So who, who does all these things? It's the government. And all this is done without any government subsidies. The government just gave them the land for free and no taxes. So what on earth is an oil company or a mining company building roads and schools and hospitals, right? So you can see the dependency that sets up, right? So they, they, they are not the, they are not the town. They are the town. They are the government. And for local Aboriginal communities who don't have jobs in the mines, for them, they are the first source. So if an Aboriginal child is sick, the mother does not go to the government. There is no government. The mother will go to the Rio Tinto manager and say, please give me some money. And in most cases, the manager will give them the money. But this, this woman or a husband or a family has no connection with the mine. They're not working there. They just happen to live there. Yes, the lands have gone. So that relationship which you normally have is set up. And it's, of course, that then that dependency continues, right? So you are essentially playing playing the role of governments as well. Uh, Shell in Nigeria is another example. Uh, when, you know, during the height of the troubles, I mean, at that one point, point of time, oil was about 30 to 40 percent of Nigeria's GDP. It's now come down to 10 percent. So this was in the 80s when Shell got into trouble. And there was a, a, a classic case where... Uh, a shell manager was kidnapped by by the, by the local community because of of the of the environmental problems. He was finally released, but then he was interviewed and he said, "Things are back to front in Nigeria. The government is in the oil business, and we are a local government." Again, in that particular area, the hospitals, the schools, the roads were all built by Shell. Okay, but there's a there's a catch to that. So they said this is great CSR. They built a hospital. There's no doctors, there's no patients. Why? Because Shell says it's the government's responsibility. They've built a school, there are no teachers, right? They've built a connection to the water, which Shell has, but there's no water because there's no water uh, pipe coming in there. So these are essentially, as I, as I said, supposedly government activities, and this continues. And the last point I want to make is the privatization of violence. So post the second invasion of, of Iraq and Afghanistan, after the U.S. Uh, troops, the second largest sol soldiers in there were private corporations. Mm. So the entire peacekeeping force, so-called so peacekeeping, and in which are now run by private corporations who have no accountability. So if a U.S. soldier, and this has actually happened in Iraq, he went crazy and he shot and about 17 women and children. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced. Uh, somebody from the private military contractor, which was at that point of time called Blackwater, did the same thing, and he was just thrown out of there. Nobody knows where he is. So the accountability of the private soldiers, mercenaries, are not to any government, right? Worst comes to worst is to the shareholders. So there is a privatization of violence. Violence is a legitimate act of the state. 
only the government can carry out violence, not private actors. But we are seeing more and more in, in the Middle East, in many other peacekeeping forces, is private corporations who are now being kind of violence are being outsourced to them. Thank you, Bobby. Um, you are painting a quite grim picture, which is uh, true in many ways. My own research uh, is also on an oil and gas investment in Tanzania in Eastern Africa. And um, it is very, these kind of colonial encounters are very, very prevalent in that case too. Um, let's move on now to uh, Professor Nkomo. Uh, may I call you Stella also? Of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, Stella, you have written extensively on, on diversity within organizations and about white privilege and on the link between colonialism and racialization in organizations in today's U.S. Can you talk about um, how you see that white privilege is present uh, within Western businesses and what kind of structural racism it entails? Uh, thank you, Ava, and great to be with Holger and Bobby. Uh, yes, and I need to. I also need to go back a little bit because I think it's very important for people to understand that structural racism started taking place just and, and, and was in, was implicated and very important to colonization and slavery. So these racialization processes gave birth to the idea of white supremacy. So what holds up structural racism is the belief in white supremacy. And, and white supremacy put out this idea that unequal development of human societies could be explained by hierarchical bi biological differences that placed white, the so-called white race above the yellow and black races. And so feeding into you know, the rationale for colonialism, it was positioned as a civilizing mission by a superior white race. Uh, and this was something that the, what the white race could do to civilize other parts of the world. So this idea of white supremacy, the, the superiority of white people compared to inferior races, black and brown people, spread across the globe. And you, you talked about the Nordic countries. So even though the Nordic countries may not have been involved directly with slavery, that idea of white supremacy spread across the globe. So even though they were not right in it, whiteness is sort of like an enveloping concept. The second thing I wanna make, and it was mentioned about the Dutch East India Company that the structural racism could even be seen early, even in how they managed their businesses, how they handled the slave trade, and also in the industrialization area uh, era. If we go back to scientific management and we look at the management practices that were developing in the early uh, 20th century, the work of Frederick Taylor, there was already racism and the idea of white supremacy built into those practices. So one thing I find very annoying, frankly, is that companies today with the Black Lives Matter, they seem to be discovering that, wow, we have structural racism. 
So that's kind of ironic because I need to say to them, it's always been there. Uh, we don't have time, but I would prefer refer readers to the work of Bill Cook, uh, who has done a lot of work showing the connection of uh, management techniques to techniques used to manage slaves on U.S. plantations. A wonderful book by Rodiger and Esch, The Production of Difference, where they talk about race management, how racial knowledge uh, informed management practices. So my point there is that his, uh, structural racism has been around for centuries. But the interest today is in how does it manifest now? So even though companies seem to not be aware of it, it is there. So I would point to like three very observable manifestations and I'll talk about the hidden ones. The first three I would point to, which Bobby already alluded to, Western domination of the world's top corporations. And when you look at that, the top 10 countries with the most global 500 companies are in Europe and North America. Of course, we begin to see that China, South Korea, and Japan are also featuring on that list. But if you look at those, those, those companies, they mirror the racial hierarchy in terms of dominance. And the fact that those corporations are predominantly controlled by white male executives and boards. And deeper than that, the zone of power of those corporations and, and the predominantly white men who lead them extends beyond even their corporate uh, boundaries. It goes into the norms and structures of international markets, as well as controlling capital markets. You know, your IMF, your World Development Bank. Uh, for example, South Africa is at the mercy of the rating agencies. So even though, for example, the US has huge debt, their, their ratings do not get lowered. So that's a puzzle to us in South Africa. And then I think the connection to the G7, the G7 forum also is a racial hierarchy. The second manifestation is the white domination of business ownership. So ownership is in the hands of predominantly people designated as white. And the third one, which uh, Bobby and Hoga both talked about, if you look, the large majority of exploited and oppressed workers are precisely those members of races and ethnicities into which formerly colonized populations were categorized. And this continues to influence contemporary racial inequalities in the workplace. So the appropriation of labor from so-called third world uh, uh, populations allows global companies to profit. And then internally, you look at the racial hierarchy in any large multinational, any company in the US or North America, black and brown employees are always at the bottom of the hierarchy. They dominate in menial, precarious jobs and organizations, 
jobs with low flexibility, low pay and benefits. So people of color, I'm using that term, it's not the best term, remain super glued to the corporate floor. Think about it, in a recent study found that if you look at the, five, the major indices in the UK, the US and Canada, only 5% of the CEOs are from ethnic minority backgrounds. None of the countries have any women CEOs from an ethnic and racial minority background. If you go to the US, in 2020, this is recent statistics, there are only five African black CEOs and 10 Asian CEOs heading Fortune 500 companies. So those are observable, they're known, although corporates don't see, they seem to be shocked by it. It took the coronavirus for them to realize systemic racism. I guess we should be happy or optimistic that now we hear people saying systemic racism might exist in corporate America or in the UK companies. But I think the deeper embeddedness of whiteness is what we should also talk about. So structural racism today is a little bit more nuanced. So the ascendancy of white employees to top positions and better paying jobs is seen as a natural outcome of individual effort and merit and not due to the ascendancy coming at the expense of holding down or subordinating black and brown people. So these racialized hierarchies that began in the colonial and slavery area become taken for granted. Aspects of corporations, they're enforced by dominant, the dominant group's power position. So any threat to changing the racial composition of, of organizations, of that hierarchy, are met with resistance. So for example, affirmative action, equality legislation, and even diversity programs are resisted. They're seen as illegitimate intrusions into normal meritorious processes and practices. The definition of the ideal worker, how we populate job descriptions and associated competencies are deeply entwined with the ideology of white supremacy because those designated in white are assumed to possess the right stuff and the right fit. So it's kind of this interesting correlation between the characteristics of a successful Western corporation and those traits ascribe to the white race. You know, strength, aggressiveness, decisiveness, competitiveness, all assumed superior traits. And, you know, the last point I will make is the point I started with. The most insidious aspect of structural racism today is its denial. So organizations are positioned as raceless spaces. So white domination has become normalized. It's neutral and normal. 
And the extent that black people, brown people continue to be at the bottom of organizations or in essential jobs, that idea gets uh, deeply embedded in the psyche of people, it gets defended. And, and this is why even so-called diversity initiatives don't change the representation of black people in significant ways. So I'll stop there. So my point is racial hierarchies and racist management practices were created and imposed initially during colonialism and slavery, but they've become further embedded in this post-colonial era. And I'll just say something about South Africa. South Africa is a predominantly black nation that became a new democracy in 1994. But as I sit here today, the corporate profile still reflects a racial and the country struggles with that and the progress is extremely slow. So Ava, I'll stop there and, and we can talk more about this if there's time. Thank you very much, Stella. Um, I would like to use the rest of the time to discuss about hope and future um, after this, um, yeah, quite grim uh, picture that we are facing today. Um, so I want to ask all of you, um, how do you think um, the Western corporate sector could decolonize? Who wants to go first? It's not a very simple question, but I think it's important to to talk about hope and a better world. If you want to talk about hope, you should ask somebody else, not me. I'll be happy to start. I, th I think that I do take some hope because I do think even if they don't fully understand the magnitude of the problem and how much they will change, just the fact that the words systemic racism are being discussed in corporate settings, I think that's a good start. I do think that uh, there would be the need, and some of them are doing that. I mean, one thing, I know what they shouldn't do, like you have, uh, what is it, Quaker Oats companies, uh, the big companies where they're changing their branding. That is all very superficial. So one of the things that they must do, I think, is to stop diversity programs. <laughs> I think diversity programs, they should take that out of their idea of that and they need to dismantle and start a new type of intervention. So this is where I agree with the Black Lives Matter. They need to stop diversity programs because they're asking people to join existing structures, which will not get them to where they need to go. And they do need to change the representation and, and remove these artificial barriers to bringing in more people of color. So those would be starts. But, you know, until we can, Ava, I think the challenge in the world is until we can dismantle, disrupt, get rid of the idea of races and a racial, racial hierarchy and, and, and rehumanize the world, to, to humanize Black people. And this is what the Black Lives Matter hashtag is about. 
you know, the fact that black people are not considered to be humans. So if, if corporations can begin to have those deep levels of understanding, and, and until they get to that point, I think they'll just be doing superficial and cosmetic kinds of interventions. And the last thing I do think, I do think they have to, they have to invest. They have to pay reparations. Uh, black owned, uh, black ownership of businesses has to be funded if we're going to change the profile of organizations. But in the end, and I think this is where, where Bobby and I would agree, and I'll stop here, is that until you dismantle capitalism, it's going to be very hard to make significant change. I think one of the important points that the Black Lives Matter um, movement has raised at least for me as a white person, is that white people need to deconstruct their white privilege. So it's not about kind of victimize or helping the victims and supporting the victims. Yeah. So today, the victims of racism, but it's about um, dismantling <coughs> privilege. So really turning an eye on the white people instead of turning an eye more on people of color. Um, what about Bobby and Holger? Do you have thoughts on uh, decolonization? Yeah, yeah. Holger, you go first. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not decolonization. I would more kind of uh, take up um, the word of Stella with the focus on capitalism and the question of a structure or enabling a structural change, which I see to be really the, the most important point here because. Uh, and that's most of the most difficult one because when I go back uh, and, and kind of um, analyze um, and highlight the question of uh, at the moment when uh, the, the abolition of slavery and emancipation of slaves started, they will kind of see a root kind of structure that it was not the slaves that were compensated, it was the owners that were compensated. Mm -hmm. uh, there was never a land reform which meant that the former slaves had only the wage labor to as an asset. So, but you, and you could never negotiate your, the wage that was negotiated by the employer. And we are still there. There is no land reform. It's only focused on uh, wage labor, but the wage is negotiated by the owners, meaning the employers. And if this is not going to change, then the rest is quite, then you do some cosmetic changes here and there, but, but you, you keep up the same kind of structures. It's not very hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I have a more cynical, perhaps realistic case, uh, take on this. Decolonization in the UK has become an ice cream flavor. Mm. Everybody wants to decolonize. So after this whole Black Lives Matter and the cast name story broke, uh, the dean of my business school asked me to chair a task force on decolonizing the curriculum. And I replied to him saying, I'm happy to do this, but if you read the literature, decolonizing, especially coming from Latin America, means uh, dismantling capitalism. Mm. I said, if, if, that's, if that's your mandate to me, then you're going to have a very interesting but very rapidly extinct business school. Mm. I, I, I haven't heard from him after that. Uh, but this is the problem. It has become an ice cream flavor. No one knows yeah. what it means, right? So that's one part. The second part, I, and I agree with Stella, I think we need to go away, get away from diversity programs. 
diversity is, is, is the difference that does not make any difference. That's what I'm, to quote Angela Davis. For me, the more the, 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 the nefarious part, the more, uh, I guess, uh, insidious part is how people of color and black people are interpolated in this discourse. Mm. So just having a black face, and this is what yeah. Cornel West called black faces in high places, that's not enough. You need yeah. to have the correct politics. Yeah. So let's not forget, Black Lives Matter started under a black president. It was under Obama that Black yeah. Lives Matter started because of, 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 the, of the shootings of the black people. It did not happen under a white president, right? Secondly, in, in the UK, and I don't expect you to know the politics here, we have people of color, black people, in, in the cabinet. This is the most diverse cabinet in the history of the UK. It is a right-wing Tory cabinet, right? Mm. Most diverse ever. But the people in that cabinet, as I said, they might be black faces and high faces. We have a commissioner for the race and ethnicity disparities. He's a black person who yeah. believes there is no structural racism in the UK. Mm. Black people. This is, this is a, a black guy who's heading the race commission, right? We have a, a minister, a home minister, a woman and, and you know, hardcore right wing racist person. She herself has been subject to racism, being of an Asian origin, but that does not make her less racist when it comes to other things. Right. So th those are things we've got to be careful about um, in terms of hope. Yes, certainly what Black Lives Matter has done. It has brought this uncomfortable conversation. Uh, and there are some very economic issues, things like I think you mentioned in your in your note, are this realistic in terms of reparations? Sure they are. I mean, if you look at uh, the history of World War II, Ford Motor Company, they paid reparations to, to for, they were directly implicated in the Holocaust, right? So Auschwitz was not run by the Nazis. Auschwitz was run by a German chemical company, a multinational chemical company, which still exists today, by the way. So these, co these corporations were sued, and then they settled out of court, and they put up a fund. Same thing with the big banks, Lloyds and Barclays. So yes, it is possible, but I think it, those are those are first steps. It's an acknowledgement of an ongoing condition, and the ongoing stuff is the important part. How is this being con continually reproduced in the so-called diverse companies? That for me is the challenge. And, and can I just, Bobby, pick up on something you said? I agree with you because that's what I I try to explain to people that this idea of racial hierarchy and the ranking of the races has permeate permeated the psyche of black and brown people themselves. Yes. Franz uh, 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 Fanon wrote yeah. very eloquently about that. And, and we don't look at that because I yeah. do think he, he captured that. And yeah. so, so part of this, I think that, you know, uh, part of me says one of the things we must do is start with, we're continuing to educate managers. So one of the things we should do, Ava, I think, is change the, change the curriculum. And I think that, you know, I've been struggling with this because I'm in South Africa. It's the same thing as you said, Bobby. We're putting, we're parachuting in black people. You just have a black, a black face. They also benefit from mimicking the whiteness mm -hmm. to hold on to their individual position. Yep. You know, I mean, Malcolm X spoke about that very eloquently. Uh, and his analogy between house slaves and field slaves. So this is a part of this whole thing, but I do think the burden upon us who colonization is what is the alternative? 
And so if we could begin to have conversations, Ava, of imagining, imagining what if organizations from the outset have been developed and structured not for dominant group domination by white people or whiteness, what would that organizational entity look like? You see? And I think that is what's very difficult because that is what South Africa thought it was going to try to do in 1994 when Mandela said, we want to build a non-racial and non-sexist nation. But I think the problem is that we haven't known a world without racism. You see, so it's hard then to say, what would this thing look like if we from the beginning I think the Latin American scholars use the term, unfortunately, it sounds too much like diversity to me. They talk about diversity, uh, but that's the task for us. But I do think we should at least, at a minimum, start with educating current and future managers. Uh, you see President Trump, I hate to bring up his name, has outlawed the teaching of whiteness to diversity programs of federal employees. So I would hope the private corporate sector will not do that because most of our students are not aware of the histories that the three of the four of us are discussing. Uh, even my students in South Africa were not really aware of this history. So I'll stop there. Thank, thank you very much, Stella, Bobby and Holger. Um, I think it's good to stop. Uh, here and uh, like Stella said, uh, start imagining a better future. So perhaps we are currently in the face of history of kind of rupture of bringing these um, issues to the fore, uh, these issues that are uh, not very pleasant for many people to face, especially uh, white people. Um, and hopefully one day we can have a, uh, another discussion about how we start imagining a different future. Uh, but thank you very much um, and um, hope you uh, stay safe and healthy uh, all over South Africa, in the UK and Holger and us else, others here in Finland. Have a good day everyone.